Today's episode is brought to you by SEGA, because Nintendo isn't the only console on the market. Experience never-before-seen play speeds with the Genesis's blast processing. Experience portable gameplay with actual color on the Game Gear. SEGA will when Nintendo won't, but... Oh, oh, dang it, sorry, I hacked it up. Uh, ah. No, no, you know what, good enough. It's 1994's Mega Man for the SEGA Game Gear. And 1994's Mega Man The Wily Wars for the Sega Genesis on today's episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I could manage. Today, we're jumping ship from Nintendo. Up until this point, the Mega Man series has been pretty closely attached to Nintendo. Yes, Western Capcom kind of flirted with the PC a little bit, but we don't really talk about that if we can help it. This was the first time that Capcom of Japan actually went and said, hey, we want to put Mega Man on something other than a Nintendo console. At the time in video gaming history, we are at 1994, and yes, Sony is due to release the PlayStation 1 in a little bit here. And like, yeah, the the Atari Jaguar is technically sliding out here, though good luck. Same with like the 3DO and stuff. Chances are you don't even know what those systems are because they really didn't last long. They were flash-in-the-pan attempts at a competitor. Prior to the PlayStation 1, the only real strong competitor that Nintendo ever had to worry about was Sega. Sega was another Japanese publisher and developer that decided they wanted in on this video games market, so they created a number of systems to kind of rival Nintendo's own. For instance, three years after the NES, Sega had released what they called the Sega Master System. And, in fact, a year before the Super Nintendo, Sega had released their second console, which came to be known as the Sega Genesis. That was the one that probably is most familiarly known and most historically well-regarded as a piece of competition to what Nintendo was able to put out. Now, of course, it depended on where you were in the world that really determined which was more popular. Apparently, the Genesis and Sega in general had a larger following in Europe. Sega even released, in 1990, a handheld console by the name of the Game Gear to compete with Nintendo's Game Boy. And so, when Capcom said, hey, we want to bring Mega Man, a franchise that's been traditionally entirely Nintendo, over to our competitors, it was kind of a big story at the time, albeit a little bit of a late story. We are in 1994 here, an entire new generation of consoles is just starting to peek over the horizon, and we're starting to see that. Even Sega's next-generation console, the Sega Saturn, is, like, just on the horizon as, hey, this is going to happen at the end of this year. But people were still playing the Genesis. It was still the big thing. It would take a while for a new console to catch on and stuff, and so this was a big deal. There was even, like, promotional artwork sent about of Mega Man shaking hands with Sonic, Sega's main mascot character at the time, as like a big deal about like, hey, look, we've successfully gotten another thing that was a reason people played Nintendo games, so you guys will come over here, right? 
because man if you think the console rivalry is bad these days no like sega went for nintendo's throats back in the day sega's main advertising motto was genesis does what nintendo doesn't whether that was true or not is another matter of debate entirely and to give a good example of this Let's talk about the Game Gear Mega Man first. I know I said we're covering two games in this episode. We're kind of going to be covering three, two of which are games that we've covered, technically, and, and we'll be digging into like what it means to bring these over onto the systems and the subtlety of differences in some ways in which things can't just be ported one-to-one, -one. and then we'll actually be covering something new at the very end that is actually really cool, so I promise you, even if you think talking about ports and stuff are boring, trust me, this will be worth it. There's something really neat these games did at the end. But first, I need to break your ears with the Game Gear's Mega Man, and I'm sorry. <laughs> So, this is a Game Gear game. It's it's titled just Mega Man. It is not actually a port of Mega Man 1. It is actually more like a slap-together bits and pieces of Mega Man 4 and 5. We got all the mechanics of it, like E-Tanks, M-Tanks, Rush Coil, Sliding, Charging, yada yada. Even more so than the World Games, like, this is directly a port. Because here's the thing to remember, is the World Games did a whole lot of remixing. They reused stage gimmicks, but they had to, like, rebuild the stages entirely for the Game Boy's very limited resolution and color palette. And then they'd often add entirely new factors, create additional new bosses and stuff in order to do this. The thing about the Game Gear is the Game Gear was a more powerful system than the Game Boy was. By a large margin, actually. For being a system released in 1990, the Game Gear was essentially a portable NES. By which I mean, this game straight up looks like the NES Mega Man games did. It's actually really impressive to have pulled this off so early. When I say that this game pulls things from 4 and 5 without remixing them, I mean straight up, barring some tiny little tweaks, the levels in this game are just the levels from Mega Man 4 and 5. The visuals are almost the exact same. Enemy movements and patterns and positioning and level design and everything. All the details of the background. Like, absolutely, it's all here. Now, of course, just because the Game Gear could do the visual side of things, it couldn't quite do the audio side of things. The Game Gear had a relatively weak sound chip to it which you can definitely hear. And it gets worse, too. Like, the Game Gear was an absolute battery-devouring hog. Depending on, like, how loud you set the volume, because the volume did make a difference on this, the Game Gear was, like, backlighting and internal speakers and everything and was basically a handheld NES, and that was all really impressive. It took six AA batteries to play for about three hours. Think about that for a moment. Think about picking up like a pack of six decent AA batteries at your local store and getting like three or four hours worth of playtime out of a handheld. It's pretty clear to see why, um, why the system was not exactly super beloved. But qualms about the battery life aside, you would think that, okay, yeah, maybe it sounds weaker, but maybe the game's just fine. If it was able to replicate the NES, the game should be fine, right? Well... <laughs> So here's the thing. Visually, yeah, it can replicate the NES. However, the resolution available to the Game Gear screen is, let's say, like, blocks of space, shorter in every dimension. The Game Gear just has less total pixels to display. And the problem with that is that while the Game Gear version did implement, like, a 
tracking camera that actually works pretty well to follow your position, it cannot display entire rooms at once the same way that the original NES could. The problem with this being, you can only see about, like, two blocks of terrain below your current height as Mega Man. Level design was never adjusted to account for this. There is a lot of times in this game where you just need to straight up make a blind jump because you cannot see below you far enough to know what is a platform and what's going to be a pit. Unless you literally have these stages memorized, you're kind of screwed, and wow, blind jumps are one of my least favorite things in platformers. They drive me nuts, and this game was just full of them. And keep in mind, I had the advantage that Mega Man 4 and 5 were my childhood Mega Man games. I know these stages super well. It was still bad. Plus, all the enemies are still functioning, kind of like they would have on the NES in terms of, like, how soon they technically quote-unquote scroll onto the screen, which means there are enemies that can be firing at you from off-screen because you've technically gotten close enough to load them in, but they're not actually there yet. And of course, there's like, there's a couple minor changes that they did make to stages. A couple features, like Eddie and the hidden letters in Mega Man 5 are cut out. There is a couple rooms where they've added an extra life here or there. Like, they were willing to make changes, they just didn't make them in any way that respected the limitations of the Game Gear as a design system, which, ugh. Anyway. The stages that we get in this game, we have four stages. We have Stone Man, Napalm Man, Bright Man, and Star Man. You might notice those are not exactly four exceptional weapons. I mean, okay, Star Man's actually a pretty decent weapon, and so is Napalm Man, or at least Napalm Man was. There's some subtle changes to the way these weapons work, whereby they just kind of all relatively suck a little bit. Bright Man in particular actually got completely reworked. It no longer freezes time, and instead is just like a gravity hold style flash of screen and damage everything, which I guess is actually an improvement, but... It's not a setup of weapons that works great against bosses, which is a problem, because one thing that did change in this game is, for whatever reason, the bosses in this game are fast as hell. They have no chill whatsoever. It's like they are running at 60 frames a second while the rest of the game is running at 30, and I, I don't actually know what frame rate this game is running at, and I don't care. It's generally stable enough, minus a bit of lag because it is a Mega Man game. Or I guess technically the term is slowdown, whatever. Anyway, my point is this. Mega Man still operates at the speed in the NES games, but these bosses, for whatever reason, function at twice the speed, which makes them extremely hard to dodge. They are very, very dangerous. Brightman in particular, he just does the time freeze now whenever the hell he wants as well, which means there's no safe way to tackle him. And by the way, if you happen to lose in this game, you get a straight up game over, and then you're back at the title screen. You don't go back to a stage select, you go back to the title screen, because to hell with us, I guess. Like, there's other ways in which this is a downgrade compared to the original source material as well. When you get a new weapon from a boss, it goes, oh, you got Stone Weapon instead of Power Stone. Which, I mean, at least Stone Weapon still matches the name of the boss who gave it, unlike the Star Crash being renamed to the Crash Weapon, which, that's a different boss entirely. <laughs> and there's dumb stuff too, like, like some of the tracks are just straight up incorrect. The the weapon get music is now using the Wily's Fortress map track. And then you get to Wily's Fortress in a bit, and the map theme is just the boss theme reused. And and it's not even the complete loop of the boss track, it's just uh. <sighs> Ah. 
Anyway, Wily's Fortress in this game consists of three stages. Again, if you game over, it's you get kicked out. You have to do the entire fortress over again. And the three stages this time, by the way, the first one is Waveman stage and the second one is Toadman stage. Interestingly, Waveman stage, it actually still works fairly well, minus the fact that now you really have to have memorized what to do for the bubble segment. The little, the vehicle segment is actually intact. That was neat. But also... The problem with Waveman stage to begin with was also that it was that it was a stage that had like no enemies for the first half, and then when you got into the second half, you were riding a machine that overrode your weapon. And getting to a Wily's Fortress and not having weapons to use feels like a bad match. Like it's it's not I love Waveman stage, but as a fortress stage, it's not the place to do Waveman stage. Somehow, randomly, Waveman is also slower than he usually is. Well, or as every other Boston game is faster, I don't. I don't understand. Toadman stage comes next. Yes, it's Toadman again. He's not as easily loopable as in the original. He'll actually jump at you whenever you hit him instead of just sitting there and trying to dance again. But he's still Toadman. He's still a joke. Also, Toadman was a really bad choice for this game because Toadman's weapon is essentially hit the entire screen. And they made Bright Flash uh, hit the entire screen. Um... You have two duplicate weapons, like literally duplicate weapons, and they're not even useful in the next stage because the next stage is Quickman's stage? Yeah, no, the finale stage of this game is a remake of Quickman's stage with a couple more enemies and at least one way in which they did improve this game for the fact that you do not have the visibility that you would have had in classic Mega Man 2 is that the Quickman lasers are no longer deadly. They just do a decent amount of damage, so you actually have a lot of room to screw around with them. It's a good thing, too, because... Um, uh, you know, they took away our ability to stop time with the Bright Flash. And then when you reach the boss corridor, you actually just teleport into one of the final rooms from one of the other games, where you walk to another teleporter, and then you get a Wily UFO fight, which, by the way, the only weapon that really works against it is the basic Mega Buster, so all your weapons are really, really useless. Ugh. Listen, my point about Mega Man Game Gear is that, yes, technically, this is straight up a bunch of classic Mega Man things just inserted wholesale, but it's made so many mistakes by not paying attention to the system that it was being ported onto and its limitations, it didn't take into account, like, hey, we mixed together a bunch of weapons, so let's do something interesting with it. No. No attention was paid to the selection of weapons, and it's kind of a crappy weapon selection. Like, I just... Uh... Don't, don't put yourself through Mega Man Game Gear. It's not worth it. Like, it is fascinating to find out, hey, there was a portable full NES visuals Mega Man, but that's the only thing that this game has going for it is that it looks like a Mega Man game because it doesn't execute like one. Anyway, let's put that aside and go to a slightly more successful work with Mega Man The Wily Wars, aka Rockman Mega World, which, who boy, does that have a story to tell. it seemed didn't really want to make a new game for the Sega Genesis. Which, I mean, Capcom didn't do a whole lot of releases on the Sega Genesis at that time. Like, yeah, there was there was Ghouls and Ghosts and the licensed titles for, like, Aladdin and 
Toy Story and stuff were showing up there. And of course they'd ported Street Fighter 2 because of course they'd ported Street Fighter 2. But Capcom by and large was not big on the Genesis. It wasn't really a success story for them. Not in the way that they became like a big name on the SNES at least with like tons and tons of games. But one thing they did try was the Wily Wars. The Wily Wars is really interesting in that if you're in Japan or Europe, you could just get this game straight up as it was. If you were in North America, there was never a physical Wily Wars cartridge printed. I mean, I think like decades later, some company printed one as an explicitly collector's item. Whoa, okay. Hold on. Future Garlisle here, or I guess uh, May 22nd Garlisle which is significantly after I recorded this episode. I record these, like, weeks in advance. The reason that I'm stepping in here and cutting myself off is that I made a mistake in this episode. I said, hey, this had happened in the past. Actually, it's happening right now. If you are listening to this episode when it has gone out, you can go to Limited Run Games and pre-order the physical release with a collector's edition and everything of The Wily Wars. <laughs> If you want to own something that never existed, you can do that. It's like 70 bucks. You get like a fancy blue cartridge along with a bunch of other cool stuff. They even did some upgrades to the game itself in the underlying coding to reduce some of the lags so it plays smoother than ever. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to remember to actually have some show notes that have the link to it. You can go get it up until like June 20th, and maybe even after that, but June 20th is the cutoff date for pre-orders. Yeah, anyway, where was I? Yeah, you can play it on, I believe it's on the Genesis Mini and a couple other similar-ish, like, rip-off consoles, but Sega tried for a while, something that Nintendo also tried at one point, which was, in the boom of the internet age, they offered a download service cart, where you'd connect your system to the internet and download certain games by paying for, like, a subscription fee. I don't know the specifics of how it worked. I remember hearing about it back in the day, but I was not part of a household where that was a financial possibility, even though I did own a Genesis growing up. But the point is, is for North America, Wily Wars was only ever distributed on that system, and it is a very, very interesting little title. Wily Wars is a collection title. It contains Mega Man 1, Mega Man 2, and Mega Man 3, completely overhauled to the Genesis level of visuals and the sound chip that the Genesis had. This wasn't strictly like it was emulating an NES game. I mean, maybe it could have done that. Maybe there was a way that the Genesis actually had enough spare processing power to do that. But no, this was this was a complete remake of the first three Mega Man games. Plus a bonus that, again, we'll get into in a little while. And essentially what it is, is next-generation visuals versions of the original three Mega Man games. And that's actually really neato. Plus, a couple other changes were made overall to the structure of the games that is kind of a benefit. The biggest one, which is almost immediately visible, is the fact that there is a save system. You have three files in this game that can each record save data for each of the three games as you play through them, and maintain which bosses you've defeated, what weapons you've gotten, like, there is no password system in this version of the game, because this version of the game does not need it. And this would make this the first Mega Man game to have actual game saving, which is kind of weird to think about, because they could have done it for quite a while. Hell, the Mega Man PC games could have done it, but... <laughs> and, I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I feel like it's going to be probably about three years, which is going to be a few different Mega Man titles 
before we actually see saving the game become a standard feature, which feels so weird to say. So let's let's take a moment and just dig into like some of the specifics of the game as, as I noticed it. So I did replay all three games on the system. I kind of had to because the extra thing at the end does require you to complete all three Mega Man games on one file. In general, these games have aimed to be like fairly close one-to-one -one with the original source material games. The weapons still generally have the same properties, enemies are still basically the same. There's some subtler differences here and there. The biggest difference that you'll notice is like, yeah, first off it is using the Genesis's advanced sound font. I mean, we'll get into this later. Technically, yes, the Genesis's sound font was capable of more than the NES's sound font was by a significant margin. You could actually do instruments as opposed to tones. But I don't necessarily love the Genesis sound font. Um, we'll, we'll get into that. And I will say, despite the fact a lot of people tend to argue that the Genesis feels like it has like a more vibrant popping color than the SNES does, I never really found that to be true. Everything feels a little bit more like muted to me. Not even like watered down. I I lack good terminology to describe this visually. The colors to me are like the difference between like almost like a cartoon animation on the SNES end compared to like a comic book design on the Genesis end. I don't know. It's really tough for me to dig into and properly explain. However, having said that, even if I don't quite like the Genesis visuals as much as I would the SNES visuals, compared to the NES, a lot of these stages look super good and actually absolutely benefit from the step up from what, like, especially the original Mega Man 1 was capable of. Many of the stages have, like, fleshed out backgrounds and stuff now, and a lot more unique foreground stuff going on. Just in general, the stages pop in a way that they haven't before. Some stages do take on a bit of a different aesthetic. Flashman, I think I joked that his stage was like being trapped in a disco ball. Now it's dropped the like flashing color aesthetic to it and has instead gone for like a completely crystalline based stage. Just in general, like the visual pop to the stages is definitely there and I think in most cases people would probably say is enhanced unless you are specifically appreciative of that very specific NES aesthetic, which honestly is a valid choice. Other than that, most changes are fairly tiny and subtle. One of the things that I did notice for sure is that many of the weapons are a little bit clunkier to use than they were in their original release. One of the things about a lot of Mega Man weapons in the original NES games was that you could just, like, you could fire them while running. And in this game in specific, it seems like many of these weapons actually force you to, like, stop for a moment when firing them. Which, yeah, technically in some ways with certain weapons that you might want to aim diagonally and stuff, that should be slightly a control advantage. But it definitely makes them feel, I don't know, something about the control of this game just feels like it's clunkier and a little less responsive, and that's hard to, that's hard to put down. On the flip side, I do feel like your hitboxes in this game are a little bit more generous. Bosses have always had invincibility frames when hit, but most regular enemies traditionally actually don't in Mega Man games. But I, I wasn't sure about this until I double-checked on the wiki and saw that it was an actually observed thing. Regular enemies do have a tiny amount of invincibility frames in this game, 
So sometimes stuff starts taking more hits because you would have hit like multiple times within those frames. And so it creates a little bit of inconsistency on how much you need to use in order to deal with an enemy. It's kind of unfortunate. There is some stuff that's done subtly to improve like the consistency between the three games as well. The big one that I noticed is that in Iceman's stage, in the original game, the water was entirely just visual. They hadn't done the like water equals low gravity yet. But in this game, Iceman's stage's underwater segments are actually underwater. Uh, what, what else is on my list of notes here? Um, Mega Man 2, screw Yoku blocks even harder. The timing is just, it does not feel good anymore. Uh, Heat Man stage got so much worse. I don't understand what the difference is in a way that I can phrase, but it is so much harder to time. And that was already one of the more frustrating sections of Mega Man 2 to me. Oh yeah, and the turret fight got worse. Because just the, the firing speed on them is so much quicker that it's so much harder to avoid taking damage. You need energy tanks for it now. Like, that's all there is to it. Oh, yeah, the Yellow Devil fights in Mega Man 1 and Mega Man 3. Um, in Mega Man 1s, you would think this would become absolute suffering because there is no longer the pause glitch to reset enemy invincibility frames. But um, normally when you go into the fights with Yellow Devil in these two games... The, the far left side of the screen is supposed to have a gate come back down over it, and for whatever reason in the Wily Wars it doesn't, and so you can actually hide on the left side of the screen and just never get hit. <laughs> like, I mean, technically the aim bullets the Yellow Devil fires at you will be a problem, but you don't have to navigate around, like, jumping across the portions of its body as it moves, because you're just, it just never goes that far left. It's kind of goofy. Um... <laughs> Oh, right, and Mega Man 3. The top spin is even better in this version of the game than in Mega Man 3, because originally, when you used it and hit something, you'd, like, bounce backwards slightly. And yeah, technically that should be a safety thing, but it made it a little bit more difficult to use it to platform safely. Yeah, no, in this version of the game, there is no recoil on hitting thing with the top spin. It is, it is full-on jump invincibility. It's great. And one other thing I noticed with Mega Man 3 is that somehow... Despite the fact that the Genesis should be a much stronger system, the Gemini laser still lags the hell out of the game. In fact, I almost want to say this game is worse about slowdown and lag than in the original Mega Man 3, which, wow, come on. Where's, where's your blast processing, Genesis? Anyway, overall, like, it is a visually more punchy, but I do think slightly worse version of the games. Like, I really had to start digging into Minuate of how these games function in order to really notice the differences. And that is that is a pro to it. It's just, most of the time when I noticed it, it was just, huh, this doesn't quite feel right. This feels a little bit clunkier. But if this was the way that you experienced the original Mega Man games back in the day, there's nothing wrong with them. Like, I think I'd still slightly recommend the NES versions, because, you know, those are the versions everybody's going to know. Those are the classics, and honestly, they sound better. But the real benefit to playing through the Wily Wars is the brand new Wily's Tower. You get into Wily's Tower mode by completing the first three Mega Man games all on one save file, and then it shows up in the game select out of nowhere. Wily's Tower has a stage select with three new robot masters, and then it has its own new Wily's Fortress of a brand new four stages afterwards. It is seven completely original stages with new bosses to the Mega Man series. It is using the Mega Man 3 mechanics, so we have slides and E-tanks and stuff, but we don't have the Charge Buster yet, that was Mega Man 4 onwards. But the real selling point and the most fascinating part about Wily's Tower is its unique weapon mechanic. You might have noticed I said there was only like three Robot Masters in the Genesis unit. 
Yeah, and they don't actually give you weapons. Instead, you have access to every weapon from Mega Man 1, 2, and 3, as well as the various support items like the Magnet Beam and the Rush Jet, and it's up to you which ones you want to bring. You can pick 8 active weapons and 3 support items into any of these stages you want, and you can, you can change too. You don't have to select these and then use them through the whole game. You can pick and choose what you bring into every single one of these stages. And, man, that's super heckin' neat. Like, there's a couple weapons that very quickly become obvious. Like, yeah, you probably want the Metal Blade and the Thunder Beam. And, like, yeah, Crash Bomb, Super Arm, and Hard Knuckle, they can all be used to bust open certain areas. Although it's worth noting, I only saw one opportunity in this entire mode to use the Super Arm, so congratulations to the Super Arm on being an even worse weapon than ever before. And all these stages are also designed so you don't actually have to bring specific weapons. In fact, you can beat this mode without ever bringing any weapon or movement item if you want. So we're avoiding the weapon screw problem too. And all of the bosses that you will fight in this mode are vulnerable to like two or three different weapons each, so you don't necessarily have to have gotten the exact perfect combination. It's, listen, just, just this idea in general of being able to mix and match all these different Mega Man games, pick for yourself what you think is the most useful? God, that's so cool. This is such a good damn idea. I would say that it has never happened again. I do know that the Mega Man X Legacy Collections have, like, a thing in them where there's a boss gauntlet where you get to, like, mix and match weapons from the different X games, but this is just... This is so good, and it's it's on a completely different level because it isn't just boss fights either, unlike the Feature and Legacy Collection. This is this is a bunch of brand new stages and a bunch of new challenges, and you just you just get to use what you personally want, and I really wish more Mega Man games did this. Anyway, our three new robot masters that we will tackle in any order we want make up the Genesis unit, which one guess why it's called that. Interestingly, these three bosses are based on the old Journey to the West story, which is kind of a classic piece of, I think, Chinese folklore. If you've ever heard the name Sun Wukong, you know, the dude who inspired Goku, that's the story that inspires this, and let's just get into it by honestly starting with Sun Wukong, by which I mean Buster Raji. <laughs> yeah, that's not a traditional robot name at all. I bet you were expecting, like, Monkey Man or something. No, his name's Buster Raji. I won't have too much to specify about the details of these stages. The main reason is that these stages do extremely little that is brand new. However, they are all very liberal about borrowing from the entirety of the three games that made them up. Like, yes, the aesthetic is actually new. Buster Rod G's stage is a very, like, military base in the middle of the jungle. Kind of Napalm Man-esque, but it's very much what you would expect out of a boss themed after a monkey. But the point is, is we get weaving in of all sorts of stuff. We even get aspects of Snake Man's stage, like, weaving into the background and stuff. It's just, it's neat. And the boss fights are the real highlight to talk about, because all of the boss fights in this are brand new, and they are actually kind of fun. 
Buster Rod, as his name would imply, uses an extending staff, which is very true to Sun Wukong. He can basically use it to try to like strike at you from across the arena. He can use it to actively deflect your projectiles. He can like create illusions of himself that jump across the screen, and one of those illusions will actually be the real one. He's just kind of a varied and fairly fun fight, which is what most of these do. Buster Rod's interesting in that of these three robot masters, he actually survives at 1 HP and runs away. So as you can imagine, we'll be seeing him later. But we'll come back to him after we've cleared out the other two robot masters. Speaking of which, we have Mega Water S, who is based on the design of like a Japanese Kappa. What I can say is that you get a largely underwater stage set in like an island chain, and if you look at the background, it gives me serious Green Hill Zone vibes, which, you know, we're talking Sega here, we're talking the same system as Sonic, so of course it should give me, like, at least a little bit of that feeling. The boss fight for Mega Water S is a very distinctive arena. Many of these boss fights actually play around with the arena a lot. It was really neat. Half the arena is submerged with only like corner platforms that are out of the spikes. And then there's like a safe island above that in the middle where Mega Water does all of his fighting. And he'll try to like shove you off it with a strong water current. He can create a water barrier. He can throw tridents at you. Mostly the idea is, is he tries to keep you off of the island and next to danger instead. Hyperstorm H, which... I, I don't know exactly what character he's supposed to be inspired by, because I don't know the story really that well. He is a very, very big boy. This is a boss that really took advantage of the fact that they were now operating on a Genesis and not having to design around old NES limitations. So Hyperstorm H has the size of, like, Flame Mammoth. He is, he is gigantic when you face him at the end of his stage. He, he is basically like a giant gorilla, like, but with a giant orb body. And, and not only is he intimidating in size, but... When he starts charging up his health meter when you fight him, the full meter charges up and then it keeps going and he gets an entire second health bar, which just had me going like, what? No, you can't do that. <laughs> but fortunately, he is about as big and slow as it looks like. The main feature of his fight is that the walls on either side of the arena are spikes. He will mostly spend the fight trying to either pull you in or push you away into the spikes. He might, like, occasionally do, like, a series of jumps to get across the arena and you have to slide under him with timing, but mostly he's a very, very simple boss. He just has that intimidating effect when he shows up. Because really, gee, Hyperstorm H, how come your doctor lets you have two health bars? With them done... We do crack into a brand new Wily Fortress. It comes with its own new look, its own new music. We do get to swap weapons between stages, and the weapons do refill, so this isn't quite a traditional Wily's Fortress, even though, like, we don't save between every stage, so we do still have to tackle it all as a gauntlet, but not with the same restrictions as before. We have the freedom to use our weapons as much as we want. Stage 1 mixes a lot of Fireman's motif with a lot of other aspects that we saw in Mega Man 1, like Gutsman's famously rude rail system. The boss at the end puts us on a platform in the middle of the arena with fire on either side, and it's just like a big fire dragon. This one didn't feel super original. It does basically exactly what you expect of a fire dragon that's like a long one that pops out of the fire on either side. Like, surprise, it rises up, it throws a few fireballs, and then it sinks back down, and occasionally it jumps overhead while shooting fireballs at you. The arena, for some reason, the edges of it are actually, like, springy, and if you jump onto them, you'll be bounced back up, and I don't know why they did that. It's not even a mechanic that's used in 
elsewhere in any of these stages, so it was just a weird thing. Stage two, we go underwater, and then we get a lot of, like, non-linear kind of maze navigation a little bit. There's a lot of dead ends and side rooms and stuff that you can access by taking ladders or using different powers to blow open paths. It borrowed Mega Man 6's propensity for side rooms and split paths, which, you know, that was a good thing in that game, so. The boss at the end of this stage doesn't have anything fancy going on with the arena. It's just a bouncing iron ball that occasionally opens up its eyes and becomes vulnerable while it's firing a weapon, which the main weapon it fires is a pair of Gemini lasers, so um, it's a slow fight, let's put it that way. Stage 3, we got kind of a cool space aesthetic going on as we revisit a lot of mechanics. This time, the boss at the end is a rematch with Buster Rod G, but it's on like a series of crumbling platforms. It starts out with just like the floors roughly in the center of the arena, which feels a little weird, but then pieces of it start to break off and new pieces start coming down from the ceiling and you realize you're like going to have to chase him up this like descending platform staircase that gives the entire place like a crumbling feel. It's just, I don't know. It's kind of a neat fight in terms of the way that it uses the arena, but all Buster Rod G himself does is just fire aimed shots at you and occasionally jump up to higher platforms. Didn't fully really utilize what they'd been experimenting with in the arena here. Stage 4 is extremely short because we're heading straight into a boss gauntlet. Just kidding, there isn't actually a boss gauntlet in this game. Um, little bit of a surprise. They really could have, like, done something fun here where you had to fight, like, the different bosses that you brought the weapons for or something. Instead, we get a boss fight with a brand new Wily machine, which is the Death Egg from Sonic 2. Uh, yeah, okay, it's not actually the Death Egg, but listen, it's a tall-ass bipedal robot that animates almost the same way as the Death Egg did. Or at least really, really gave me those vibes. A fairly simple fight. You have to ride up some platforms on the left side of the screen in order to, like, target its hips for the first phase while dealing with homing missiles. Then its legs snap off and we get to fight the body where we have to, like, jump on its fists when it tries to punch us and ride those back up in order to shoot the face. And then we get kind of a Wily Capsule fight where this time he's not, like, randomly teleporting around. He just hangs up at the top of the screen and drops, like, time bombs down at us. And if one of the previous Mega Man World games taught us any Anything. Anytime the Wily capsule stays visible, it becomes really easy. Assuming you brought a weapon that is a good match for it. In kind of my favorite little uh, ending goof, by the way, as Wily's groveling for us, he throws us a point item from Mega Man 1. As we go to collect it, uh, it explodes and Mega Man jumps back and Wily takes the opportunity to run off. And then we get a credit scene with like the robot roll call and stuff of just Wily running away from Mega Man in an open field until his UFO shows up to just like tractor beam him back up. All in all, this stage doesn't do a whole lot in terms of new gimmickiness. The boss fights are fun. The boss fights are, like, actually very decently done in general. A couple of them are not super great, but they're varied. They're doing interesting things with the stages. And while the stages are not doing anything new, again, they are borrowing almost everything that you see in the first three games in terms of enemies comes back somewhere in Wily's Tower mode. So there's a ton of variety in what you were dealing with. This mode is meant to be really, really, really replayable thanks to the fact that you can choose your own arsenal for it, and I think that's really, really cool. 
doesn't necessarily justify, however, going back and playing the entirety of the games just to get to this point? Uh, I don't know. Depends on how much you love the first three Mega Man games, which I know for many people is a big yes. I don't necessarily know if overall I would consider Wily Wars to be superior, but Wily Tower is something that I absolutely think was a ton of fun to play through at least once, and just is worth looking into. Listen, honestly, if you're going to emulate it, there are save states out there you can use that just sent you straight to Wily Tower. If it didn't have that little bit of clunk to its controls, I might almost say that it's better than the originals were. But... You'll notice I haven't talked a whole lot about the music. Listen, up front, I hate the Genesis sound chip. I hate it. There's very few Genesis soundtracks I enjoy. Something about the system's sound output does not sit great with my ears. Like, it should technically have a whole lot of, like, low tone depth to it. But it's just, ah, uh, it, everything sounds like it's off-key to me, and I don't know how to properly explain it. The instrumentation is just cheap, and yeah, I know, the SNES was basically doing, like, the same kind of stuff, or maybe borrowing some samples and, like, scaling that up and down to pretend they have different instruments. But it's just, the Genesis sound font sounds so cheap to me, and it doesn't achieve a lot of the things that the sound font was able to do on the NES either, Listen, it was hard for me to find three tracks that I really wanted to highlight out of this soundtrack. This game's soundtrack, because it contains the first three Mega Man games, plus an entire additional game with custom music in it, is 82 tracks long. I had trouble digging through this and finding three tracks that I was like, yeah, this is good. And even then, the first one I want to highlight isn't necessarily because it's good. I want to highlight Bubble Man's track from Mega Man 2 to kind of illustrate it, because this was one of the almost better adaptations Especially the opening does something that has this nice aquatic echoing feel to it. But Bubble Man's track in Mega Man 2 was one of my favorites, and there's so much that's subtly going on in that track to do with, like, the echoing theme of, like, the low bass notes versus the high main melody to create this, like, submerged feeling in it and subtle use of reverb and stuff, and it's missing. So I'm going to play the original here and then transition into the remake, and I hope you'll understand what I'm trying to say. just been negative for a track here, what I do want to say actually succeeded is Wily Stage 3 from Mega Man 3. Now this was never a super notable track from its original game, but this is one time where I think that the Genesis's like deeper basses and generally like 
lower tones actually help amplify the sound that this track was going for because i do think this one is a straight up improvement over the original just because it is trying to go for like a darker more ambient thing going on and it's better able to achieve that than i think the original nes sound font could but this kind of darkness is not typical of the Mega Man soundtrack and maybe that's why a lot of it doesn't convert super well Finally, the one original track I do want to highlight is Wily Tower Stage 4. Again, I don't necessarily think it's super amazing, but actually the melody and stuff that is going into this is actually pretty good. It's kind of a shame, actually, that this stage is so short by default, because there's a good energy here when normally later Wily stages have opted for something more serious and dramatic. And the thing is, is I have gone and looked for remixes of this track, and it actually sounds really good in like a traditional NES sound font and stuff. So it's not like this composition is bad. It's just being slightly held back by a Genesis sound font, but that's my only complaint. That'll do it for our trip onto the Sega Genesis. Believe it or not, there isn't actually any other Mega Man games on the Genesis. I do think at one point, there was supposed to be plans to do like a Wily Wars 2 that would have included Mega Man 4, 5, and 6. Though I'm not even sure in retrospect where I read that, because I can't find that information again, so maybe that just feels like a natural successor. That isn't to say that Mega Man games won't be appearing on Sega consoles in the future, but with the Sega Saturn having just released, uh, this was Mega Man's brief fling with another company. And as we leave this behind, we're heading right back to old reliable SNES. We're going to tackle Mega Man X2 next week. If you've gotten tired of me doing episodes that are like kind of like ports and stuff, we've basically covered it. Like, unless I decide in the future to do an episode for the Legacy Collections and Anniversary Collection and stuff, which, yeah, I probably will at some point, because there's actually a whole bunch of unique stuff added into some of these. But until then, in the distant future, this is basically it for games trying to literally just be re-releases of the previous games. 
that are in any way significantly notable, it's all new stuff from here on out, is what I'm trying to say. So thank you for bearing with me if you actually found that whole discussion kind of boring. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, or if you're sick and tired of hearing it and want to yell at me, please feel free to send me an email at whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at whatamipodcastfor, as in the number four. You can get the newest episodes at waipf.podbean.com or check your preferred podcast supplier. You can probably get it there. With all that said, thanks for listening. And just remember, Sega did what Nintendo didn't, which was lose the console war in the grand scheme of things. And now they're a third-party developer who actually have made peace with Nintendo and they get along really well, which was probably the best ending to the scenario. We even get like aspects of steak. Steak man? <laughs> wow.